0: In C.S. Lewis's novel, The Screwtape Letters, Lewis imagines a conversation that takes place over a series of letters between an experienced elder demon named Screwtape and his young nephew and protege named Wormwood. Each letter contains words of wisdom, if you will call it, from Screwtape to Wormwood, advising him on effective strategies for tempting a human being assigned to Wormwood. And so because of this, when you read the screw tape letters, you have to read the whole book sort of in reverse or backwards, because everything's inverted, you see, because in screw tapes, mind, God is the enemy, and Satan is our father below, and so on and so forth, and it's really a quite clever book that Lewis has written. It's really fascinating to read. I'd like to read an excerpt, if you don't mind, from one of screw tapes' Letters. Screwtape says, now it may surprise you, Wormwood, to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, the enemy relies on the troughs even more than the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. And the reason is this. The enemy really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself Creatures whose life, on its miniature scale, will be quantitatively like his own, not because he's absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. And that is where the troughs come in, because it's during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that the human is growing into the sort of creature the enemy wants it to be. Now, troughs may be a bit too archaic for some of us. It's a remnant of Lewis's now outdated Old English. Perhaps a modern translation of troughs could be valley, or maybe a pit, or maybe the gut of a fish. (laughs) Just ask Jonah this morning. We began last week looking at this likely familiar short story that a lot of us probably heard as children. But a man of God named Jonah, a prophet, who received a calling from God to arise and go to Nineveh and preach against it. And Jonah, instead of heading straight to Nineveh, hightails it in the opposite direction, booking a nonstop trip to a distant place called Tarshish. And we explored last week that Jonah's hesitation and rejection to answer God's calling isn't what makes Jonah and Scripture unique, at least not to me. I suggested that what makes Jonah stand out is not that he fights his calling is that he doesn't that Jonah stands out not because of anything else rather because instead of hanging in there and coming to grips with his calling at least at the start of the book he abandons it and he runs and he ejects and instead of confronting God and wrestling with God which admittedly is a bit scary thing to do Jonah believes it's just far better to put as much distance between him and God as as he can and we talked about last week how I think that Tarshish is not only just a geographical place but it's actually more a state of the soul where we drown out God's calling with other stuff and other responsibilities and other gods to worship. It's a culture, it's an ethos that doesn't encourage us to be obedient to God. And Jonah hopes that he can go to this place to lose himself and maybe if he can just get there, God won't bother to come looking for him and instead he'll give up and find somebody else. And maybe that's the mindset of souls that just flee to Tarshish. That's what they're hoping to find. But on his way to Tarshish, uh, in the boat, transporting Jonah, it hits a little bit of turbulence. And the text says that the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm. If Jonah thought that God wouldn't come after him, he's surely mistaken. And the storm is so violent, in fact, the ship is said to be on the verge of coming apart. And all of these veteran sailors, all these experienced seafarers, they instantly panic. And did you notice that they suddenly find religion? All of them start instinctively praying, crying out to their own respective deities. Some of them get pragmatic and they start lightening the load, throwing as many non-essential things overboard. But meanwhile, the text says all this time, as all of this is happening around him, as chaos is unfolding, the one the storm is sent for is said to be sound asleep down in the cargo hold. The narrator has previously told us that Jonah went down to Joppa and he went down into the boat. And if you just listen to the language here, we find that Jonah is down below deck in the hold. And this isn't coincidence, because the text is going out of its way to specify the trajectory, did you notice, of Jonah's movements, that in his disobedience and his running, he's descending vertically from the presence of the Lord. And the author is trying to pull us down there with us into the depths with Jonah, and it wonders, can Jonah go any further than he already is? The next thing we're told is that the captain of the ship, wait for it, goes down after him, and there it is again, and he goes down after Jonah, and he wakes Jonah up yelling, how could you possibly sleep through all of this? Just get up and start praying like all the rest of us to our own gods. Maybe your God, whoever it is, will notice us and take pity on us. I like that one commentator said, The captain hopes to locate at least one God who has the power to say to this storm, peace be still. Ironically, it's this captain, this pagan, who awakens Jonah, this man of God, with the same calling that Jonah had received from God before he got on the boat. Did you notice this? God told Jonah to arise and to go and to call out. And the word of the Lord is pursuing Jonah as he's trying to escape it. The captain says the same exact thing to him. He says, get up and go and pray. The commission is haunting him even in the bowels of this ship. And it's worth pointing out that it's this pagan that reminds this preacher of his religious commitments. All the unbelievers are spiritually activated in this story. They're praying, did you notice this? But the believer is the one that's apathetic and silent. One wonders if we underestimate the spiritual appetite of people we deem as heathens say what you will about those people who pray to foreign gods, but at least they're praying. The man of God ain't praying at all. And I can't help but hear a faint message to the church about her lukewarm response to storms in this world in comparison to everybody else. A sermon for another time. If this were a movie, I like to imagine... That the next thing would happen is Jonah would be waking up, he'd be yawning, he'd be rubbing his eyes. The crew is assembled together close to him in the cargo hold. A couple of them are anxiously murmuring to themselves as one of them, probably the captain, starts to cast lots. Casting lots was just this common practice in the ancient Near East to discern the will of the gods. And interestingly, it's the only form of divination that's permissible in Israel. Usually some small objects, usually stones or pieces of pottery, they'd be put into some small receptacle of some kind, and you'd shake the receptacle until one of those marked objects would fall out, and that would indicate the God's will. If you're uncomfortable with any form of gambling to determine the will of God, the VeggieTales version has the crew playing Go Fish with Jonah losing. It's ironic, it's a great humor by Phil Vischer to have Go Fish in the story of Jonah. Peak comedy. Peak comedy. And as all eyes are on Jonah, as the lot falls on him, then all the sailors start peppering him with questions. Did you notice this? Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What's your nationality? Why would this awful storm be coming after you? And it should be noted that the lots only revealed the human target of divine anger. It didn't tell you why the gods were mad. So that's why they're barraging this barrage of questions, this interrogation. They're trying to get to the bottom as to why any god, a god, or any god would be offended by Jonah. Because even Jonah may not even know that he offended a god. That's why they want to know more about who Jonah is. Because the more personal information they can get the better their odds of identifying who the deity is, the offense, and even some way to calm this storm. And as all eyes are on Jonah, to his credit, Jonah comes clean. He doesn't justify himself or he pleads ignorance. He doesn't do any of that. Jonah just simply says, speaking for the first time in the book, mind you, this is my fault. The storm didn't come because God's mad at y'all, It came because it's after me. Because you see, I'm Hebrew, and I worship Yahweh, the great I Am, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And ironically, this rebellious prophet's mere mention of the name of Yahweh caused faith in those pagan sailors. The text says this terrified them. But one wonders if this isn't just Fear at the power of Jonah's God, that the eyes of these sailors are open to the reality and the presence that's sometimes terrifying, friends, of the great I Am, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. And because those who know the story and know where we're headed, the sailor's response to Jonah's lackluster message is the same that will be of those Assyrians in that city. Because yet in another cruel twist of fate, whenever Jonah just lives into his calling, even just a little bit, whenever he gets up and he goes and he calls out, whenever he does that, God blesses him. God starts to use this as a conversion process in even the unlikeliest of places and the unlikeliest of recipients. It's happening right under Jonah's nose. It's funny how that happens. When Jonah's through talking, I believe Jonah receives a fresh word from the Lord. A commentator pointed this out, and I've been chewing on it all week. I think it's really compelling. Because the sailors respond to Jonah with a question that Jonah never answers. It leaves it open-ended. The words of this pagan sailors, I think, is really a question God has for Jonah. Did you listen to what the sailors said to him? They said, what have you done? Why did you do it? It's funny how God sometimes tries to communicate to us the ways that he does it. I can't help but think this is God talking to Jonah. What have you done? Because I think it's the same age-old question God's been asking his rebellious children ever since the garden. Because in the garden, God asked Eve the same question. What have you done? God just keeps asking the same question, not out of anger or rage, but it's more out of grief and frustration. And I like to think that this is the moment that woke Jonah up. Woke Jonah up to the fact that his God was hot on his tails, that God was pursuing him, that God wasn't going to let Jonah go without a fight, that while all the sailors likely looked around and thought that God was going to destroy Jonah, Jonah knew that God wasn't going to smite him. God was just simply trying to get his attention. And sometimes for those of us that are just a little bit stubborn, it takes God unleashing all the fireworks of heaven, to finally get us to pay attention. And it's at this moment of realization that a large wave crashes against the boat, knocking everyone off balance. The groans and the creaks of the wooden ship reverberate in everyone's ears, signaling that if this storm wasn't a Category 5 hurricane, it sure is now. And all eyes are still on Jonah, and the crew just asks him, What do we do? Tell us, preacher man, tell us how to appease your God. (laughs) Throw me overboard, Jonah says, and everything will be fine. It's my fault you're stuck in the middle of this contest, this 3D chess match between myself and Yahweh. Just toss me overboard, or translation, sacrifice me, and everything will be normal. Amazingly, at least when I was reading this story, interestingly, this group of anonymous pagan sailors won't do it. When you read the children's Bible, you get this impression that these guys couldn't wait to hoist Jonah over the sides of the ship to get the tsunami to calm down. But these guys show this incredible reluctance to do that. They have this internal protection of life that you don't just kill people. And this is remarkable of these pagans, that they do all that's possible to preserve life. But when they finally see that There's nothing they can do. They give in to Jonah's cockeyed plan and they cry out not to their gods, but to Yahweh, Jonah's God, using his name. Please, Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us responsible for killing an innocent man. You, Lord, have done as you pleased. And it's quite remarkable that these guys who have been pawns in this contest between Jonah and God, do not, as one commentator put it, want to be held accountable for the outcome. And so against their better judgment, they take Jonah, they heave him overboard, and immediately that, immediately that raging sea calms down. And all of these sailors, dripping wet and soaking wet, are amazed as they see the sky clear up. So much so that it's said that they make start making sacrifices to Yahweh, and they make vows to serve him. guess it shows that the influence of even an enthusiastic preacher can have. Perhaps God works in spite of his own people's reluctance and disobedience. A sermon for another time. And so now we're with Jonah, under the surface, as he's sinking in a downward trajectory. There it is again. Except this time around, he is plummeting down, he'll later say, to the depths of what is called Sheol, or what the Hebrews called the abode of the dead. The Greeks had their own word for it. They called it Hades. And it's often confused with hell, but it's different than hell. It's just the underworld. It's this neutral place for those that have died and where they dwell. Jonah believed that he was descending into death because you can't go any further downward than death's own doorstep. And as he later recalls, as he's inched closer and closer to Sheol, he says, as he was passing through the valley of the shadow of death, the psalmist might say. He cried out to God from the belly of Sheol, and the text says that God appointed and provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. A better rendering is actually God prepared that great fish to consume Jonah because God's assignment for that fish wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision to rescue Jonah. When we hear this story as a kid, I think we think that God sort of just kind of reacted to Jonah walking the plank. But this is something, at least in the original Hebrew, seems to indicate that this was God's plan the entire time. For the longest time, I thought that nothing substantial happened in the belly of the fish, I had heard the Jonah story enough times and I figured that it was just simply a means to get Jonah to turn around, that it was just an elaborate U-turn in the story, if you will. It was a cul-de-sac in the plot for God to put Jonah on the straight and narrow. And I think a lot of times when we teach the story, that's what we tell kids. But unfortunately, I don't think that's what Jonah is trying to tell us. That's least not what I think the biblical author is, because the biblical story says this is the most pivotal moment in the narrative. Because what happens in the fish may be the most important part. Because notice it doesn't fast forward through those three days and three nights. It lingers there. It dwells there. It invites us to live in the uncomfortability and the pain and the isolation and the struggle of the trough of this particular person. Because in the sanctuary of this fish's belly, that we finally have Jonah, after all this time, doing what prophets are supposed to do, what we expected Jonah to do at the start of the story. We hear Jonah speak to God, that he starts to pray. And when you hear pray, you may think, like I used to, that Jonah was just simply meditating for three days, a technique to block out and endure the claustrophobic confines of this fish prison. But I don't think that's what's happening. Because if you actually read the text, Jonah is doing something more like the psalmists do. That he's speaking candidly and honestly to God. He's not holding anything back. He's wrestling with his, with his feelings and his beliefs and his theology about God in the fish. Jonah is finally showing what we talked about last week. That, that chutzpah, that, that gumption, that activity, that engagement that I believe God is looking for. Because we discover a God who meets us wherever we're at. And the things Jonah's saying is remarkable, you guys. Did you hear what he was doing? He's not defending himself. He's not trying to justify what he did. Rather, he's saying things reflecting on what God has done. He's saying things of self-abandonment. He's not protesting that what God did is unfair. Rather, we find Jonah saying, you, God, threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. And then I said, oh, Lord, you have driven me from your presence. Let me translate that in slow motion. I know what you did, Lord. You caused the storm. You put me in this trough. And I initially thought it was a sign that you were done with me, that you'd forsaken me. But wait, yet I will look once more on your holy temple. Translation, I see in reality now that this trough was actually a sign that you want to dwell with me like you dwell with your people in your holy house. God wasn't through with Jonah even though Jonah was through with God. And Jonah's just now realizing that. Jonah says, I sank beneath the waves and the waters closed over me, seaweed wrapped itself around my head, and this ain't some way to inspire some cutesy artwork of Jonah. This is someone speaking from the trough, a glimpse into someone's dark night of the soul, of someone venturing through the valley of the shadow of death. I was imprisoned in the earth, Jonah says, whose gates locked shut forever, but you, O Lord, snatched me from the pit, from the jaws of death. The meaning in the original Hebrew is grave. Jonah's using this language and this imagery of death in the grave to describe the fish because he sees this whole thing as something of a death and it's this startling and vivid yet fascinating language, friends. Do we ever read Jonah chapter 2 when we tell the story? Maybe that's why in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, Jesus uses this story as the parallel for his death and resurrection. Did you know this? In both instances, Jesus is pressured to give a sign to prove the legitimacy of his ministry. And the only thing Jesus says in response is curiously a hyperlink to Jonah of all places. Jesus says, But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights... So will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Of all the Bible stories Jesus could have pointed to explain or offer a parallel of his own death and resurrection, Jesus chooses Jonah and the fish. So like Jonah, Jesus himself sees this fish as a sort of death. And as I was chewing on it this week, I learned something that drives this point even further. Are you ready for me to blow your minds and for you to throw stones at me? we have more than one fish in this story. There's more than one fish in this story. I was listening to Marty Solomon with the Bema podcast, and he talks about there's an interesting detail linguistically in the original Hebrew that lows largely unnoticed, even by those that can read the original Hebrew, so don't feel bad. At the end of chapter 1, Jonah is swallowed by a male fish. The word is Dog. Then in chapter 2, Jonah prays from inside, wait for it, a female fish. The word changes to daga. And at the end of chapter 2, he's spit back out by a male fish, that dog. So either our fish is changing genders or we have more than one fish, a female fish and a male fish. (laughs) This is so cool. I'm not literally telling you there were two fish, by the way, or they're swapping genders. What I'm trying to tell you is that the original Hebrew author wants us to notice something that's happening here. He wants us to see something that's happening here, and so he's being clever. He's changing the tenses of a biblical Hebrew word, because in ancient Hebrew, unlike English, they have masculine, feminine, and neuter tenses. That's how they communicated stuff, and he wants to communicate something to us, and it doesn't take the much knowledge, knowledge of anatomy and physiology to see what he's trying to say. Jonah is swallowed by a male fish, but he spends the whole time in the belly of a female fish. Why do you think that is? What would be so significant that Jonah is in the belly of a female fish compared to a male one? What is unique about female bellies? Females have this incredible thing called womb. And they have this superpower to create new life inside of them, in their bellies. Do you see what the author is trying to say? So when Jonah is spit or vomited or expelled back out onto dry land, the imagery of the original Hebrew isn't that the fish gets sick and just barfs Jonah out. It's more of an expulsion, that Jonah is kicked out, almost like he's reborn. Jonah is in the belly of a female fish, then the fish is going to vomit him out, expels him out, and you get this idea of a new birth showing up in Jonah. One commentator said when when he prays to Yahweh from within the mother fish, Jonah appropriately moves from death to life. Those looking, those going whale watching in Jonah, do that in Alaska. Don't do that in the biblical text. There's much more going on. With this imagery of death and resurrection of a new birth, I'm discovering that sometimes God has us go through these troughs that, as Screwtape says, his special favorites, as he calls them, sometimes go through these long and these deep and these low situations and seasons, these valleys and these pits, much like being in the womb or the belly of a fish, not as a punishment, friends. It's a preparation <laughs> for your calling into the Ninevehs and your world because you can't go to those places and do the hard things and being the kind of people you are right now. Something in you has got to die so something else bigger can be born. You can't go to Nineveh and be changed. God's got to change you before you get there. And this is what God will do so he can partner with you in Nineveh. Who Jonah was needed to die, because when God gets involved in a death, resurrection is right around the corner. Jesus said, only a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. God invaded Jonah's life because a resurrected, reborn Jonah was the one God wanted to empower to go to Nineveh. It's not that God was desperate for a slave, so he stalked Jonah until he twisted his arm to enlist. That's not what I read in the story. I read a God that won't abandon Jonah or any of us or allow any of us to live less than how he knows we can live. God refuses to let us be less than who he fearfully and wonderfully created us to be. Because it breaks God's heart to see us not being fully alive and thriving. And sometimes because of our rebellion or our sin or whatever it is, God has to sometimes take those drastic measures to form and shape us. It's sometimes hard to see how these troughs are beneficial or profitable in the moment. You usually only see it in hindsight. Jonah probably figured it out after he got into dry land. God doesn't punish or appear to punish without a purpose for growth. So what if a part of becoming who God envisions and inspires us to be is that those aspects of ourselves, certain aspects, whatever they are, or maybe even our entire selves, we have to die to ourselves so a new and a better self will be rise again and be born again. Not with the physical birth resulting from human passage, John says, but a birth that comes from God. I think this gets closer to the picture of sanctification that the apostle Paul talked about in Ephesians. Since you have heard that Jesus, have brought Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful self and your former ways of life which is corrupted by lust and deception but instead let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes put on your new self created to be like God truly righteous and holy Bob Goff says I think God allows all of us to go missing a time or two he doesn't lose us like we lose stuff but he lets us get lost for a while if it's what we really want And when we do, he doesn't pout or withhold his love the way I probably would if someone completely ignored me or walked away. Instead, he pursues us in love. He's not trying to find us. He always knows where we are. Rather, he goes with us as we find ourselves again. And in this way, we have a little, little bit of sheep and shepherd in all of us. God isn't constantly telling us what to do as we search for ourselves either. He gently reminds us of who we are, and he continues to rewrite our lives in beautiful and unexpected ways, knowing that the next version of us will usually be better than the previous. Maybe this is closer to the mystery of why God relies on those troughs even more than the peaks to form and shape us into new creatures, the new humans he wants to partner with to heal this broken world, friends. Because if you decide to go to Nineveh, if you are brave to go to Nineveh, you will have to go through a death and a resurrection first. When you think about the calling God has placed on your life, whatever it may be, the function that God is calling you to do, the verbs God is calling you to embody, to arise, go, and to call out. When you consider that unique thing that God has placed on your heart, as difficult and maybe as unattractive as it might be, if you're brave enough to wrestle with God and go to Nineveh, what parts or things in your life God may be wanting to prune and remove and refine What if certain callings require being swallowed by a fish for a while before we're even ready to go into that calling to Nineveh? I'm not saying that every plight and every pain and every heartache and every bad thing that happens to us is a trough. I'm not saying that because sometimes bad things just happen because we live in a chaotic, fallen world but I think it does mean that every wound or limp from wrestling with God, every wandering in the desert, every fiery furnace in lion's den, every storm at sea, every dark night of the soul, every my God, my God, why have you forsaken me prayer? These are moments and these are seasons and times that the enemy wants to use for evil, but God can transform into something life-giving that they're not without a purpose, that they are formative and redemptive. And while I'm not dismissing the pain or the hurt and the grief and the struggle, I want you to hear the holy purpose, that the reason our good shepherd, who faithfully provides for our daily bread and leads us to those peaks, to those green pastures and those still waters that we love, this may be why he also leads us through the valleys of the shadow of death. And what if we just trust the shepherd for this reason? That we need not fear for the psalmist says you are with me and his presence comforts me. Troughs are not forever. I'd like to close with the words of the Apostle John as we close. Sorry, the Apostle James. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. Because you know when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. And when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.